preaching God's Word to you this evening on the basis of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 35, which we read earlier, and I would invite you and encourage you to have your Bibles open there so that you can follow along as we look at God's Word here. John the Baptist is what we might call John the Baptist, and we read about him in the other reading, Matthew 11, is what we might call the great Advent prophet. He called upon Israel to prepare the way of the Lord. That's really what Advent is. It's getting ready for the coming of the Lord. Advent is the season in which we, we remember Jesus' first coming and in and, and which we also await and long for his second coming. So John came along as that Advent prophet telling God's people to prepare the way of the Lord. He, he told God's people to, to get ready for the arrival of Messiah. His kingdom is about to arrive, he said. In this passage that we read in Matthew 11, however, notice what's happening. John is locked up in prison. And so we have this question, if the kingdom of God has arrived, then why is John in King Herod's prison? And especially if the Messiah has come to set prisoners free. And such questions lead us to the heart, really, of Advent. Remember what James tells us to do in his letter. He tells us to be patient until the Lord's coming. And that's why, really, it's not just this season before Christmas, the, the weeks before Christmas that are, ad, are Advent. Really, our whole time here on earth, our, our existence here on earth, as we wait for the Lord's coming, is Advent. So James tells us in James 5, verse 7 through 9, he tells us to be patient until the Lord's coming. And then he adds there the judge is standing at the door. We know who the judge is. It's Jesus Christ. And we also know that He's standing at the door. In other words, he's, he's ready to return at any moment. And we have to be ready. We have to be ready as if He's right there at the doors of this church. We always need to be ready. In the meantime, however, we need to be patient. We need to have Advent-style patience. We, re we need to remember that as Advent people, we are pilgrim people. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that we're already in the kingdom of God in one sense. But in another sense, we're still on our way there. The already not yet of the Gospel. Already God's children, we're already members, citizens of His kingdom, but we still need to await its final arrival. We know that God's kingdom has come, 
But we also realize and recognize that its, its fullness is still in the future. And that's what we long for, isn't it? And here in Isaiah 35, Isaiah has good news for us. His good news of a new world, a new life, and a new highway that helps us in our waiting and our longing for God's kingdom to come. So he gives us good news, first of all, of a new world. He tells us, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the, the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. That, a new world is on the horizon. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're, we're expectantly looking forward to. But now, consider this in the context of the rest of Isaiah's prophecy. Because if you know anything about Isaiah, and I'm assuming you do, you know that Isaiah's prophecy has a lot of very dark words. The good news here in Isaiah 35 really stands out in Isaiah's prophecy because it comes in the midst of bad news prophecies. And that's why if you read the prophecy of Isaiah, and I, I encourage you to do that, and to do that regularly, because it's really one of the high points of the Old Testament, I would encourage you to persevere through the whole prophecy and, and really take in the view on the, at these high points like Isaiah 35. This is also the case here in Isaiah 35. We're at a, a high point in Isaiah's prophecy where, where we can see very clearly the beauty of God's kingdom and the glory of what awaits us. But then consider what happens what we're told in Isaiah 34. In Isaiah 34, just a chapter before, Isaiah gives a, a harrowing prediction of a collapsing world. The destruction of the world is, is described there as, as cosmic. The sky rolls up like a scroll. The stars of the sky fall like withered figs from a tree. Cities are emptied out so that the only living things in them are night creatures, cave dwellers, and scavengers. When we come to Isaiah 35, we've, we've just been through a war zone. Described there is Genesis 1 in reverse. The decreation of the world. The world is returning to the same formlessness as before creation. There's destruction, there's emptiness, there's formlessness, there's darkness. 
Everything is unraveled. That's not the end of the story. God is not only going to bring judgment upon His enemies and punishment to sinners, He's also going to bring salvation, as we'll see in a moment. He's not only going to destroy the old world and collapse it like a useless tent, He's also going to make a new world. Isn't this really relevant in our time? Don't you feel like there's so much wrong with this world? There's so much confusion. There's so much darkness. There's so much gloom. Things are unraveling at the seams, as it were. There there are war zones everywhere. There's hatred everywhere. So we need this good news, don't we? Of a new world. A better world. And that's what Isaiah tells us about. It's going to be a glorious land like Lebanon with all its trees and majestic forests, the work of God's mighty hand. And it's going to have the splendor of of Carmel and Sharon. And what does that mean? Well, Carmel literally means garden land. It's going to be a garden land. God's going to make a new garden land, a new Eden, a restored paradise. Unlike anything we could ever imagine. And Sharon, too, is a place of beauty. It's known by God's people as a place of beauty with its lush and colorful botany, with its roses and crocuses and flowers and and plants of every variety. And that's what the new creation is going to be like. God's new world is going, going to be a place of such incredible, unimaginable beauty. The gladness of the new world is going to contrast with the groaning, sighing, and pain of the old world that we experience here. Remember what Paul says about this in, later in, in Romans 8. Remember how Paul describes there in Romans 8 how the creation is waiting And how as the creation is waiting, it is groaning as in the pains of childbirth to be saved along with the children of God. We hear the groaning of the world, don't we? In the news, as we drive the streets of our cities and our neighborhoods, As we watch the news, as we observe the fallenness in our own lives and our own families, the stresses and struggles that come with life in this world, we say, yes, Paul is right. 
creation is groaning. And if we put what Isaiah tells us here and what Paul says in Romans 8 together, goes something like this. The redemption and renewal of creation is in a sense tied to our, our redemption and renewal. And so as we see our own lives being transformed by Christ and His Spirit, we can also be sure that the new creation, the, the, the restoration of all things is on its way. What God is doing in in your heart and what God is doing in my heart, making us into new creatures, is a testimony and a picture of what He's going to do with the whole creation. He's renewing us by the power of His Spirit. And by that same power, He is going to make a new world. That should give us courage and comfort. There's so much wrong with this world, so much wrong with the environment, so much wrong with our bodies. There's disease, there's pestilence, there's social and political chaos and turmoil. War and hatred everywhere. How could anyone deny this world's need for God? For renewal? For salvation? But take courage, brothers and sisters. What God is doing in your heart right now by His Spirit and what He is doing day by day is a testimony to what He is doing for the whole world. Making a new world, a new creation. Isaiah tells us, in fact, that it's going to be a world full of gladness. In fact, that's the very first word that that, that Isaiah uses in this prophecy. The very first word is glad. Glad will be the wilderness and the dry land, even though it's not translated that way. Glad will be the wilderness and the dry land. And then we also find gladness at the end in verse 10. Isaiah's point is that this new world that God is making for His pilgrims is a world that's, that's wrapped in gladness. What we have a, a picture of here in Isaiah 35 actually is the picture of a new exodus. The pilgrimage of God's people through the desert this time, unlike the first exodus that we read about in the Old Testament, the pilgrimage of God's people through the desert this time is going to be a journey in which the wilderness transforms before their very eyes as they pass through it. The desert is is going to blossom miraculously as they make their way through it. Whereas the first exodus was through a desert with harsh and terrifying conditions. You can read about that in Acts 15 and 
Deuteronomy 1. In this new exodus, the desert is going to be transformed into a place that, that is filled with gladness. So there's good news of a new world in verses 1 and 2. There's also good news of a, a new life. In verses 3 and 4, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. New life. Strengthen the weak hands. Hands are the, are the agents of, of strength, or the, the agents of action. And Isaiah says that they are made strong. Knees give stability and durability for the long pilgrimage. And they too are steady and strong. Hearts that were previously anxious receive a new dose of courage, an injection of courage and patience and strength. This is something for us to remember during our pilgrimage, isn't it? Don't you feel weak sometimes? Very weak? When you feel weak, remember that God promises to strengthen your hands for the tasks that He gives you to do. Remember that God is at work in you, as Paul says. He is at work in you. And He will provide you to do the works that He's prepared in advance for you to do. You are God's workmanship. And He's at work in you. Remember that when you feel weak. It's not you. It's God who is at work. When you feel like you're running out of steam, when you're growing weak, like your knees are buckling under the pressures and strains of life, when you feel stressed out, remember that God promises to give you endurance until the end of your earthly pilgrimage. He will steady you. He will make, make your knees strong so that you stand firm to the end. So that you're steadfast and that in the end you are still standing, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, clothed with the full armor of God. He will help you to run the race with perseverance so that you won't buckle when you feel like giving up. Because God is at work in you. He will give you strength. He is your strength and your song. And when your heart is anxious, there's so much anxiety in the world, isn't there? So much anxiety in our own hearts. When your heart is anxious, He will give you strength. He will give you courage. He will give you confidence. Don't look for it in yourself. Ask Him for it. He has it ready at hand. 
Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's all you need to do. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus. And He will give strength and courage and confidence to your anxious heart. Don't give up waiting for Him, Isaiah says. He's he's going to come. He assures us twice in verse 4. In in retrospect, He has come. He has come in the person of Jesus. And He's going to come again. So don't give up waiting for Him. In order to bring this salvation to His own, God is going to come with vengeance and recompense. He says in verse 4. In other words, He's going to punish those who oppressed and persecuted His people. He will deliver His people from all their enemies. Next, Isaiah tells us some of the great signs of God's salvation. In verses 5 and 6, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, The lame will leap like a deer. The voiceless will shout for joy. The word then at the beginning of verse 5 and 6 is emphatic. In other words, all these miracles are signs that God is on the scene. Now who do you instantly think of when you read of people being healed like this? Lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear. Well, you know the answer. It's Jesus. All the miracles and signs of healing that Jesus performed during his ministry were the signs that he was indeed the Messiah that God had promised. He was the Messiah that Isaiah was talking about and all the other prophets. And notice the totality of God's salvation. Not only the the faculties of receiving are restored, sight and hearing, but also the faculties of action. The legs and the arms, voices, are all activated. The paralyzed have use of their limbs again. Those who have lost their voice speak again. Furthermore, it's not only physical healing that's in view here, but spiritual. Isaiah hints at this in other portions of his property, of his prophecy. The deaf, he says, will both hear and understand, he says in Isaiah 29. The blind will both see and perceive. Even the rash fool will now both know and understand. Fools will understand. And the stammering tongue that could not express itself before will now be fluent and clear. He says in Isaiah 32. Remember how God complained through His prophets that His people were always seeing but never perceiving. 
They had eyes, but they didn't see a thing. They were always hearing, but never understanding. They could hear, but they didn't actually hear what God was telling them. God couldn't get through to them. Well, now, that's all going to change, Isaiah says. The lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear. And all this healing, all this new life is a consequence of water gushing forth in the wilderness. Verse 6. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Remember how God caused water to gush from the rock when His people couldn't find any water in the wilderness? God miraculously poured out water from the rock. There's no water to be seen anywhere and, and God produced water out of the last place you'd expect it to come. God miraculously poured out water from the rock and so He miraculously saved their lives which they thought were ebbing away. They thought they were goners. But God gave them water for life. In fact, in the original Hebrew, there's actually a causal relationship between water and healing. The water that God miraculously sends forth into the wilderness is is the cause of all this new life and healing. When the Lord sends water into the wilderness, people are restored to vitality and fruitfulness. And this image of God's life-giving waters all over the Old and New Testaments Isaiah 44, for example, there Isaiah uses the image of God pouring water on the thirsty land as an indication of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the descendants of Jacob. Remember how in John 7, Jesus speaks of the new life that He will give as streams of water that He causes to flow within us. Likewise, John speaks of those who are born again as those who are born of water and the Spirit. This is what's signified to us in holy baptism. The washing with water of baptism signifies our renewal by the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit gives us life when we were dead, when we were goners. The new life that God promises imparts to believers and their children. That's what's in mind here too. God is going to do His marvelous miracle of regeneration in His people. He's not just going to make a new world where burning sands become bubbling brooks and where the roaming grounds of wild animals become gardens full of reeds and rushes. He's also going to make new, regenerated people to populate the world. And the water of baptism is God's sign that we are partakers of that new world. 
There's good news here of a new world, a new life, and finally a new highway. A highway shall be there, verse 8, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The road that God puts us pilgrims on is literally a highway. A road that is high. In other words, a road that's clearly visible. Now, think for a moment of what it's like in a desert. Typically, in, in the harsh desert, roads are very difficult to find. That's why the Bible sometimes calls the desert a trackless waste. It's a place where people easily get lost and disoriented and where the path is easily obliterated by the wind-whipped sand. And isn't that what this world can be like for us? Isn't it easy for us to lose our way in the wilderness of this world? Isn't it easy for us to get lost? Don't we sometimes feel like we're going in circles and that we've completely lost our orientation? Or that we're going in the wrong direction? And that's why God has given us a clearly visible high way. And He's done that in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the way. The Bible tells us. And He's also the light on the way. He's the way that can always be found. And when we follow Him, we won't get lost. We won't go in circles. When we follow Jesus and the light of His Word, we'll always be traveling in the right direction. And even though we can sometimes feel very disoriented and lost, we may know that He'll bring us safely to our destination in His kingdom. He'll bring us home. This is good news for us. This highway says as Isaiah will be reserved for the redeemed of the Lord. For the ransomed of the Lord. Verse 10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. This is the first time that this wonderful word ransomed it actually appears in Isaiah's prophecy, and it's a beautiful word. It's full of meaning. It's actually related to the, to the Hebrew word for redeemer, goel. You may, have, you may have heard that word before, goel. The goel, other, otherwise known as the kinsman redeemer, was the, next of, was the next of kin of the person being redeemed. So the Goel, the Goel was the relative who had the right to stand in the place of his hopeless, victimized relative that was in need of redemption. He had, he had the right to take the place of his helpless relative as if it was his own. 
so that he could intervene on that person's behalf. Remember how Boaz did that for his dead relatives, Elimelech and his sons Mahlon and Kilion, and this way brought about the redemption of Naomi and Ruth. Well, in Isaiah, God is the only one left who is able to ransom his people. And that's exactly what he does. He becomes their redeemer. He identifies with them as the next of kin. Making their needs his own. And he does that in the Messiah. The Messiah becomes the Redeemer of God's people. He becomes our next of kin, so to speak. He's not ashamed to call us His brothers. His sisters. And you know who that is. That is Jesus. There's something else that I want to mention before we close this evening. Did you notice from our reading in Matthew 11 that John asked if Jesus really was the Christ? John, the greatest prophet, asked if Jesus really was the Christ. In other words, John was asking for proof that Jesus really was the Christ. Confirmation. Well, I think it's safe to say that for this reason, we too are allowed to ask for proof. Do you sometimes wonder God will provide the proof. As you cry out to Him, as you look to Him, as you pray to Him, God will provide that proof. As you look to Jesus, as you seek His Spirit for strength, for endurance and patience, as you make your way down the highway that He has opened up for you. Jesus has come to us in human flesh. And He keeps coming to us every day through His Spirit, leading us on the highway of salvation. And He's coming again when He will make good on all God's promises fully and gloriously. This Advent and every day of your pilgrimage here on earth, it's my prayer that you will feel the gladness and joy of this good news catching up to you. And if you don't feel it, 
And there are days when you won't. If you feel disoriented, confused, lost, don't give up. Look to Jesus. Hear His Word. Listen to Him. Call out to Him. Follow Him on the way that He has opened up for you. Pray. Wait. And do that every day. And He will bring you safely to His kingdom. Amen.